welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show or download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on attacking the supply chain of deadly illicit fentanyl. To learn more, visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a deterrent conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. I recently spoke at a press conference about a California ballot initiative on homeless, drug addiction, and theft reduction. The initiative seeks to repeal Proposition 47. The proposition made stealing less than $950 a misdemeanor, in effect creating the smash-and-grab tactics that allow stealing as long as items are less than $950. It also, in effect, eliminated drug courts and the incentives for people to stop using drugs. The ballot measure is now collecting signatures in order to qualify for the election. At the press conference, I spoke about two things, compassion and deterrence, and I want to share with you my words. First, compassion. As a doctor, I have infinite compassion to people with medical conditions. I have empathy and provide hope and treatment to people who have a substance use disorder, a chronic, relapsing, yet treatable disease of the brain. Separate the medical condition of addiction from the red line that is crossed when someone harms another human being. At that red line, we must separate the medical condition that needs treatment and the infringement on another human being. Compassion that avoids consequences to people who commit a crime is not really compassion, but cruelty. It's cruel to two parties. It's cruel to the victim and it's cruel to the person committing the crime. It robs a person from the opportunity and incentive to change and improve their lives. Stealing to support drug use crosses a red line that affects the victims of business owners and the consumers who face higher prices and the entire community. Permitting theft to support drug addiction is not compassionate. It's cruel. Next, I talked about deterrence. We won't arrest our way out of the drug problem. We've all heard that nice cliche. We don't want people in jail for using or possessing drugs. However, that cliche does not mean free drug use and dealing drugs with no deterrence. What we are witnessing now with overly permissive drug laws is an increased pipeline of people with addiction. Deterrence to drugs, including laws that deter drugs, is a public health method of preventing disease. For a segment of the population, spending time in jails saves their lives. It allows them to detox from drugs, get their brain and thinking back, and get connected to treatment and opportunities. We won't arrest our way out of addiction, but we will also not naloxone or treat our way out of the problem. Studying 
from the history lessons of tobacco and opioid prescription, an important aspect of the solution is deterrence. Having deterrence to drug use is showing compassion and has a measurable public health outcome. To learn more about deterrence, I reached out to District Attorney Summer Steffen. District Attorney Summer Steffen was named one of the five best prosecutors in the United States and recently received the 71st Annual Attorney General Award for her service. San Diegans overwhelmingly voted her into office in 2018 and 2022, and she now leads the second largest district attorney office in California, serving as a people's prosecutor. DA Stefan, whose job is public safety, has done more for public health than some people in that profession. She supported fentanyl testing in hospitals, prevention measures for drugs and crime, and now school-based education that will prevent drugs. She is a rock star. To learn more about District Attorney Summer Stefan, check out the High Truth show notes. District Attorney Summer Stefan, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Great to be with you. It is always great to be with you, and congratulations on your award for Attorney General Award, a big deal. Um, um, it's really a reflection of my whole team, but it is it is quite humbling, and I'm honored to receive uh, a Meritorious Service Award. That's been my whole life about service. Yes, and you do that just in an amazing way. One of the top people that I've I've ever met who just sees a problem and fixes it and, and makes things happen. Uh, like I said, you're my, my favorite district attorney in the whole world. And, and I never realized how much um, people like you, uh, who I think, oh, you're just putting people in jail, but actually do to make our communities better and to help uh, me as a physician and, and people in public health. It's amazing um, the reach that you have into our community in doing Thank good things. So Oh, thank you, Dr. Lev. I've learned a lot from you from the many years that I've been on different committees and efforts with you. You know, our life is a journey and a learning process. And you start off, you know, in law school, picturing yourself in a courtroom, trying a murder case. And of course, I've done plenty of that. And it's quite the honor of my life to have represented victims in the courtroom. But as the district attorney, being able to collaborate and affect wider policies that can change lives and really save lives um, has been an incredible thing and has required partnerships and especially the partnership and the learning alongside our health field. And you have been a leader in that. That's why I was so excited to do this show with you. Yes, thank you. I'm so glad to have you here. Now, your position, the district attorney, Maybe you could tell us a little bit what that is, and it's an elected position, and by the way, you ran and won unopposed, so that's how popular and how much San Diegans think of you. It's it's very nice to run unopposed. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I spent 28 years on the ground as a prosecutor, a deputy district attorney, um, and uh, working on hundreds and thousands of cases tried many sexual assault and murder cases, human trafficking-related cases, school threats, cases. The last school shooting that San Diego County had was one of the jury trials that was one of my last trials that I did. 
And then in 2018, I ran for district attorney. There was really nowhere else to go. I had, you know, reached the top of my field and there was more I wanted to do on a on a level that that changes um, the playground, if you will, uh, for people to thrive, for every human being to feel safe in every neighborhood. And that was that was a t- tough election, but thankfully, I you know the community came together and I I won the second time in 2022. I was elected without um, any uh, opponent, which was very nice because there's a lot of work to be done and it allowed me you know a, a few moments of sleep which was great mm-hmm. um but it's really about the service and what we can do as district attorney your job primarily the way it's written is to ethically prosecute crime i think what i've done to change our mission a little bit is to make it a three p's mission that is underlies everything that we do. So we still have at the core the accountability of ethically prosecuting crime, and that's very important. But also we've added the prevention of harm and the protection of victims so that those three Ps, when they come together, we believe and we have seen the results, they start to actually um, transform systems and make the the three of them work better together, uh, so that the next generations, for example, in a domestic violence case, if you allow that situation to continue, what you're producing are children that will inevitably grow up to be trained to accept being victims of crime and another generation of victim group, or they understand love to be violence and they become offenders and they become perpetrators of harm within their family. And that ripples through the whole community. When you're able to bring a prosecution that is fair and equitable, hold the perpetrator accountable, at the same time, bring the resources to protect the victim and her family, I say her because many of our victims are women, although we have male domestic violence victims. And then from there to build a prevention based on the lessons learned that may stop this from happening in the future. And this is the same method that I use with fighting fentanyl, with fighting human trafficking, with fighting elder abuse and scams that are hurting our seniors. Almost every big issue we have in our community, we bring that 3P approach to it. That's great. And and, and I see that uh, in effect. Now, is your a position political since you were elected into office? Is it a, do you run as a Republican or a Democrat? In uh, well, it is an election, so in that sense, it, it's part of politics, but thankfully, um, it has no party designation because, you know, when you have a victim of a crime or a harm that happens, there is nothing in the police report that tells you what party that victim is. 
when you have a fentanyl overdose, there is nothing that indicates this young person, 13-year-old that mom found in the bedroom, was came from a Republican or a Democrat family. It's it's almost entirely irrelevant to the position of being the top public safety official, which is what the district attorney is, and the the person that is the minister of justice um, in the community and in that county. And so, uh, thankfully, you know, it doesn't go that way. And and um, I'm I've always not been a political person. I'm a professional you know, prosecutor that grew up wanting to use the law as a sword and a shield to protect the most vulnerable. And so, you know, I, I'm not out in the street with with guns, um, you know, with with our law enforcement and everything that they do. I partner with them, but my tools of trade are bringing that law as, you know, really the heart of our nation. We're a nation that follows the rule of law, everyone is treated and is supposed to be treated. It's a journey to pursue a fair and equal justice for every human being under the law. And, and so that uh, that makes it so amazing because the only thing I need to decide is what's the right thing. I don't have to decide whether it's the, you know, red or blue thing. Right. And and I agree. And I see that like in, in, in my um, brief political time at the White House. It's not, I'm a doctor, right? <laughs> and you're right. A, a lawyer. I'm a doctor. And what does that have to do um, with wanting to save lives from, from drugs? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So out of all your cases and horrific, horrific things that you see in in your career, is there a case that really stands out to you? You know, <sighs> All my cases really are important to me. Just yesterday, I was meeting over um, Zoom with a family um, where their case was uh, a murder and and a rape, a really awful, um, awful case. And uh, that, that rape victim and then the person who raped her killed her boyfriend that she loved. Um, And in, in wanting to control her and keep her. She, and she was his sister-in-law, his young, you know, immigrant sister that had arrived. It's a horrific case. And I, I was 20 years later meeting with this family because the jury made a decision. They made a decision. He was guilty after trial of first degree murder and of raping his sister-in-law earlier and trying to control her and keep her under his thumb. And the sentence was 71 years to life. Every minute of it was well-deserved for this very cruel act of taking Johnny's life. You know, a 23-year-old whose family loved him, um, part of an incredible Vietnamese family in our community, But what did the legislature do? They decided that there would be elder parole at 50 years old. As a doctor, you know, there is nothing in science that makes you a senior at 50 years old. But the legislature decided that is the elder age that would qualify you for early parole. So this family that was and that were terrified of this guy 
now have to relive it. We have to go to a parole hearing later in March. And I'm going to be right there with them. Doesn't matter. I'm the district attorney, uh, what fifth largest county in the United States. They are important. Their case is important. And, and so that's just an example of how cases are really important. You live the pain with the families. You work so hard to bring them justice. You put the case together. I remember I was chief, assistant chief of the North County branch when this murder went unsolved for three months. And then this young girl went to the police department terrified one night and they called me because she went there, but then she wouldn't actually talk. And we did something very unusual, and you'll appreciate this, doctor. We used, even though she was an adult, we used a forensic interview so to, to take the pressure off of her, to have a nurse-like person asking her questions while documenting them. We suspected she was a rape victim and followed the rules that way to, to see it through, which really was excellent. But so that case is just top of mind right now because I'm upset about what this family has to go through again and for the fight we have to have. Again, this is a reflection that, unfortunately, I believe that as a prosecutor with all my heart, you have a duty you that, that the accused have rights you have to protect. The victims have rights you have to protect. The community has a right to be safe. You have to protect. Unfortunately, the only thing we ever hear about is the right of the criminals. The balance of protecting victims' rights and the right of the community to be safe is just not even mentioned. It's a blip on the radar. And in essence, what it's doing is it's actually hurting people who are addicted, who are committing crimes, by by the very people who are saying they're helping them, but they're not actually helping them. They're locking them into a cycle that's going to lead to death. But the school shooting, I think just because I had little kiddos that were five-year-old and six-year-old on the stand, and, you know, um, one of the, the most adorable lines was, I told all the kiddos at, Cal at the um, elementary school that were shot, Remember, when you're in the courtroom, you're you're in the driver's wheel. I, I know they don't drive, but so one of them got on the stand and I said, well, what is the number one rule? I'm in the driver's seat. And it's <laughs> like the rule is that they have to tell the truth. But in his mind, that's what he remembered. <laughs> he's that's behind so a car and he's in charge. So, so it's. I mean, my my victims leave me with such inspiration for their courage um, that keeps us going every day. Yeah. You know, what you say is so true. And, and that's kind of what I talk about. I talk about compassion. Well, people say that they're compassionate towards the perpetrators. It's not compassion. It's cruelty. You're cruel to the victim and you're cruel to that person who you're robbing them from an opportunity to change and improve their lives by getting away with things. Um, so that is exactly right, Dr. Lev. That's the message that 
is sent to them that actually makes them more and more emboldened. Uh, I mean, we see this a lot in the area of retail theft. I walked recently, I like to be out in the community. I know you see me everywhere, but there is, uh, this comes from my training of, you know, always visiting the crime scene. You know, that's where you really gather the information. You can't just sit behind your desk and read a report only. And, you know, I visit stores small and large, and I've never felt this before. There is a sense of fear. An industry where people who work at Target or work, you know, in perfume shops, they're supposed to be in a very safe environment. They're, they didn't sign up to be me. You know, they're not in a, they're, they didn't choose that career. And now I see them looking over their shoulder and they shared with me, you know, they have to see people openly steal if they come and approach them in any way. They're afraid. And in fact, the person feels so entitled that they'll they'll punch them, they'll push them. Uh, they, they will just not at all like have any deterrent effort or deterrence because they know the law can't touch them because we wrote our laws and the people passed laws that that have no built-in incentive to stop crime. There's no deterrent effect. So, you know, there's there are unintended consequences. For example, example is Proposition 47, where it gave first-time offenders who possess hard drugs like fentanyl, like methamphetamine, a misdemeanor. They gave them a misdemeanor the second time they possessed. But what they did is they put no stop to this. So you could, for example, you could steal or possess hard drugs every day of the year, multiple times, and you still get your citation to the point that our officers are completely disheartened, demoralized. They feel they, they don't have the power to protect the community anymore. Um, businesses, you know, stop reporting. And then people who want to make a point say, oh, crime hasn't gone up. But it's because the store owners are telling me, what is the point of me reporting? Nothing's right. going to happen. Right. So this is where you should have balanced laws. We all believe in first and second chances. I don't want to see some kids stuck with a felony because they made a mistake, because you know, they stole some food or candy or something that was there. We don't want that. But when somebody makes it their business to destroy someone else's business, to hurt our community, um, to have open drug use near schools and everywhere, that means there's a failure in our law. And we as the people have to stand up and change the law. And that's that's the beauty of our nation is we can do that. We have power as the people. Yeah. And that's important. I know that you went and testified to Congress about the the smash and grabs and the thefts that are, are happening. Yeah, that was a really, uh, really an honor to do, to be the voice of, uh, you know, the prosecutors around the nation that are experiencing this. Um, I'm president-elect of the National DA's Association. Um, hopefully, if I don't mess anything up, I'll be sworn <laughs> in as president in July. Congratulations. Um, and it's quite the privilege, uh, you know, to 
to present that voice um, because we're right there. We're seeing the pain. We're hearing from our officers. We're also hearing from our victims um, and we're seeing the impact in our communities. So, um, you know, I brought some ideas at the very core that, that, you know, the laws have to make sense and they have to protect the people and they have to be balanced. Um, And I I think it, it resonated. And giving deterrence is compassionate and is public health. And and I see what you're seeing, what your law enforcement officers see. It. I see that in the emergency department. When I was a young doctor, people would hide their drugs. They wouldn't openly show it. And now I have, you know, people, patients, they'll have their baggies in their hat or in their socks or in their backpack, and they're not embarrassed or afraid of just openly having drugs and they know nothing will happen. And that's lack of deterrence. That's lack of compassion. Um, I I agree. And, you know, I feel really, um, I feel for the parents of today, of young children, because the message that they're getting, because they're very smart, you know, our kids are smart and they are getting the message that drugs are not illegal. And uh, this is why we see the JAMA reports, one after another, the pediatric reports, showing a higher, higher increase in in uh, unintentional overdose with children. You know, right. there's two ways, of course, as you well know, that's happening. It's negligent parents that are leaving their drugs where kids can access them, mm-hmm. including um, cannabis and marijuana, that's a very high THC that's that's really uh, causing psychosis and other things and also ca- causing poisoning in young kids. Um, but but it's also or touch or fentanyl or other methamphetamine. We're seeing that, but we're also seeing teens and younger and younger kids actually unintentionally using uh, substances. Because the message is that it's not illegal, it's okay. Um, and that's what our laws are saying to them. Yes, and it, you're right. It is, um, uh, not again, not compassionate. And uh, thank you so much for speaking out on on the harms of marijuana, because so many people want to avoid that that subject. And yet it's the number one poisoning of kids under the age of five. These are not kids who have a substance use disorder. They're being poisoned um, by their um, usually uh, a family members uh, stash and all these uh, candies that, you know, look fun um, are have marijuana and they cause encephalopathy. These kids are not giggling and happy. They have, you know, brain damage and there's no antidote. And they just have to wait for days to detox. And sometimes there's long-term consequences of that. And I feel like we've failed in our laws to protect the public. I don't think when people voted for medical marijuana or even recreational marijuana, they expected this outburst of poisoning of babies. I mean, I I completely agree with that, and and it also failed um, with what it promised. You know, it it promised that there would be a lot of education about how different it is for my for children and for teens and for undeveloped frontal lobe, um, you know, uh, young people to use marijuana. 
uh, that there would be kind of a counter almost a marketing that makes it clear that that this is you know an over 21 adult choice and we, we of course know there are many consequences for abusing that and but focusing on children you're supposed to have that but what we see are billboards with very attractive names uh, we see um, just convenience shops that are selling uh, marijuana we're doing a case like that now they're they're you know right there where kids are buying gummies and everything right across the street from from schools um, we're not seeing the investment in um, the education and the knowledge to be given to our kids, our teachers, our parents about how devastating it can be for young people. And of course, now the studies are coming out, but we don't see the coverage on a national TV about the um, unleashing of psychotic disorders and depression, anxiety and everything else that is coming from a youthful use of marijuana. Yeah, absolutely. It's a risk factor. Like tobacco is a risk factor for heart disease and cancer emphysema. Not everybody who smokes is going to get those diseases, but we all understand that that's a risk factor. And the same thing with cannabis uh, and psychosis. It's a risk factor. Um, not everybody is going to get psychosis, but if you use high potency on a regular basis, that risk could be 20%. That's significant. That's right. right. That's right. And, you know, parents trying to do everything for their kids, but they're not informed, you know, about what what it is to to leave your, you know, cookie and gummy and your marijuana out there. I mean, it needs to be obviously if you're going to use it with young children around needs to be locked up just like a gun, you know, where they cannot have access to it. Right, right. Right. And we, that's exactly the education and, and uh, failures that we have in, in public protection. Um, but you like to talk about uh, kids and schools and uh, tell our audience what you are doing as far as education. And it amazes me. That's why I am so admire. I admire you so much that you you see a problem and you go to fix it wherever it leads you. And if it leads you to the schools of San Diego to correct um, something that's exactly where you're you're going. Oh, thank you, Dr. Lev. Well, I, again, it goes, you know, we we are on any big issue. We're not able to prosecute our way out of it by simply pro prosecution is important. It's accountability and I invest in it. But if we can prevent that harm in the first place, you not wait till our kids are are addicted and now try to prosecute the dealers that got them addicted. Let's try to prevent that in the first place. And unfortunately, you know, in 2009, for the state of California at least, the funding for drug education, our schools went away. And the reason given was that, well, it's not effective. Well, we know taking it away is not effective. We see the devastating results. We see the the all of the the issues with with now the potent poisonous illicit fentanyl next time it'll be another drug so we always have to be able to not just focus on fentanyl though fentanyl was a huge wake up call with over 70,000 people dying in the United States from fentanyl 
it's unbelievable that it's the number one cause of death for for people 18 to 45 and the the ripple effect the fact that nothing comes close to it in any other category car accidents guns cancer covid but we can the idea is that you know in a few years the cartel will come up with something else they they will keep innovating in order to make people more and more addicted and make drugs more and more something that people need to buy and seek. And this is why what we need is really evidence-based, good education in the schools that can pivot with the times and can build a real resiliency to these harms that are coming in the, the way of our kids. I think that's the real win. You know, every time, and I know, Dr. Lev, you've seen me do this, and I, you know, keep it together every time, but it's very hard, you know, looking at a parent who, you know, had an A student and, you know, who was feeling anxious, what high school kid doesn't feel anxious and ordered Xanax online and got fentanyl and they discovered their kid in the bedroom dead. I mean, how many times do we keep doing this without stopping this failure of at least alerting our kids that they're, what they're buying is most likely going to have fentanyl, yeah. of how to resist, how to recognize their mental health and seek ways to do it in a healthy manner to deal with it, how to have conversations. You know, we... We can get an A student in math, but if we don't have them tomorrow, then we've lost. We've really lost. So what I'm doing is, you know, went to the board of supervisors, got an action that we would use some of the opioid settlement monies to help fund, since the state is not funding this, help fund education that is evidence-based in our schools in order to really build resilience, knowledge, knowledge is power, and to save lives. So that is what we're working on with the help of the schools, medical professionals, and and hopefully we will have a good amount of funding for it. That's so important. So two things about what, what you what you just said. One is, and they both related to upstream prevention upstream as far as the supply. Um, I, I work with a group called Families Against Fentanyl. They they take that CDC data and and show the 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 um the, the epidemiology that you just mentioned, 18 to 45. They're the ones who put that together and they want to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction in order to get a whole of government approach because we are being invaded and attacked with this drug, right? If your kid takes a Xanax and drops dead, then then again, this is like mass murder in, in our country. And so they want to take it to that level. Maybe in your role with a leader of multiple district attorneys around the state, you can. we're getting more and more attorney generals and, and leaders signing on to um, weapon of mass destruction. Well, it, it certainly has been. I mean, scientifically, when you, you can decide what is your most potent weapon by how much damage is done, how many people has it killed, you know, not to mention all the admittance to emergency rooms and people saved by Narcan 
and and other other ways. I mean, it it has been, but we also haven't done. I mean, I keep waiting for a fentanyl commercial on mainstream like television, like the Super Bowl or something else. I mean, we had COVID commercials and COVID was important. Educating about it is important. But the numbers tell us that a lot less young people died of COVID than fentanyl. Absolutely. You know, in tobacco, of course, there are commercials and everything. We have to find innovative ways to use our marketing, to use um, continuous effective marketing. We do know that there are less users of tobacco now, that that education that is constant in different forms, different messages does penetrate. And, And so we need to do that when it comes to fentanyl. Yeah, and the tobacco money, settlement money went into the truth campaign that did a, that spent all that money on um or the majority of it on uh tobacco prevention with stigmatizing tobacco use. We know we have a whole stigma campaign of saying like it's okay to have a substance use disorder, which you do want compassion to somebody who has a medical disease, but you still want stigma on drug use. You know, we don't want people uh, using illicit drugs that that harm their their brains, and I, you're right. I would love to see that. Uh, at the peak of tobacco, we had 42 percent use of tobacco. Now we're at 11 percent, so it worked. Exactly. It worked. The other upstream thing is what you're doing with the schools. That's upstream prevention at a young age. Addiction is a pediatric disease. Uh, it starts at a young age, and teaching kids resiliency. Um, mindfulness, uh, how to deal with life's of you know difficulties because life can be hard without going to drugs and teaching those skills at elementary school age and middle school is on it is a life skill that everyone can use, not just people with a substance use disorder. My my theory of why we're spending billions and billions and more dollars every year on the drug problems and we're not making headway is because. Uh, not any one thing we're doing wrong. Like each one of these things are, you know, a good idea, you know, harm reduction and prevention, education, everything, even needle exchange, that's all important, but it's not allocated right. If we spend most of our money on a the 7% who have a serious substance use disorder instead of, instead of spending money on the entire population to prevent substance use disorder later on, that's exactly what you're doing. I'm so excited for your project that you're doing in San Diego. Yeah, I'm excited too. And and I know I appreciate all the studies you sent me, which were really impactful to me uh, about that, it, you know, it's about decision making too. It's building in their ability to make healthy decisions for themselves because, you know, it's fentanyl today could be something else tomorrow. Um, Trank we know is coming in. We know all sorts of things are coming in. Um, so being able to build that ability to think and to to use healthy mechanisms to resist, you know, that's similar to what we looked at with human trafficking. We were able to kind of get a law that made human trafficking education actually mandatory in the schools. And it's interesting because at the younger ages, you can't explain human trafficking that. Prostitu- being sold in prostitution, sold for labor, 
all of these things. What you are teaching the kids is that they have autonomy over their bodies and their decision that they um, they control themselves. They can say no to something that doesn't feel good. You know, they can take charge. You're so it's a similar theory that you're building kind of their healthy habits, their life skills, their resilience at a young age. Later, you can actually explain that the issue uh, because it's very graphic. But you don't need to do that at an early age. You can just teach them about their own bodies, their own autonomy, their own respect for themselves. So I I, I love the studies because they're that they apply to drugs and everything else. Right. Yeah. It, they show that if you teach that emotional resiliency at a young age, later on in life, you have higher academic achievement, less drug use, um, less violence, um, less bullying, you know, every everything. It, it has a, a great effect of in, investing and it's very cost effective too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, government, about- I always say this, we're, we're often... Um, better at band-aids, you know, than, than actually the cure, you know, we're, we're, yes. we'll come and kind of band-aid everything afterwards, but, but the, the, the real cure is, is actually in, in, in building the, um, the freedom, the, the liberty, the, the control for each person, um, to make these healthy, good decisions, not what society is telling them, but what is really, truly good for them. Right. And, you know, um, an example of a Band-Aid is naloxone, right, and and treat and, and uh, addiction treatment. That's once you already have a problem. That's important. We, we have that, and we're investing a lot in that. But if we went, again, upstream, um, and that's what we did with tobacco. That's what we did with prescription drugs. That's how we ended the problem, is, is thinking about the next generation. Um, Speaking of prescription, I think you're aware of this, um, Dr. Lev, but one thing I was very proud to accomplish when I first became DA in 2018 was to, when we weren't talking about fentanyl as much, we were talking about opioids and prescription over prescription, is to finally get a mandated label on opioids that says that it, it is addictive and can be uh, dangerous to life, you know, that it can kill you in a big red label, uh, which was never on it. We we had more warnings on aspirin, you know, right. and Tylenol. We didn't have, which just seemed like absolutely unbelievable. Why wouldn't you put a label on this? So now it has... So it was really, really nice when I had knee surgery and they handed me uh, the bottle, which I didn't use, uh, but it it had my label on it and made me <laughs> smile in the midst of uh, pain. <laughs> well, labels work. There's there's science behind that. We have labels on tobacco and alcohol. Now you said that, you, you know, you got the labels on the opioids. I was really upset. Um you know, with our legislator in California and our governor when they absolutely failed to put um, evidence-based type labels on cannabis products. We have labels on everything. And we wanted to have um, labels that say can cause, you know, uh, psychosis, suicidal ideations, driving, fetal harm, just basic things like we have for alcohol. And they would not pass that. 
Um, they, they failed to pass the candy, you know, prevent candies from getting into children. And just now, I also had a, um, uh, a law that I wrote that I wanted to just have labels like you have on your prescription bottles. When you pick up your prescriptions, you know, it says don't use with alcohol or don't use with grapefruit juice. I just wanted to say don't use with cannabis products because there are, you know, 300 and 500 different type of medications. You could bleed to death. People don't know this, but you could bleed to death um, if you take blood thinners and cannabis products. And we studied and found out that people want this information, and yet I can't get someone to carry it. I'm not going to give up, though. I'm going to keep no, going. No, we know you don't give up. You got, you did get that one <laughs> legislation, one important legislation about tracking that if uh, a hospital tests for um, drugs, a drug panel, the fentanyl needs to be included. Yes, and, and you were the first incredible. one. You were the first one to just jump on board and write a letter and support it. Um, so I'm very, very thankful to you. And the good news is that passed bipartisan agreement: fentanyl testings in hospital. And California was the first state to do that. Now it's uh, uh, Maryland copied us, uh, Pennsylvania, and there are several other states, and even um, federal legislation. Um, That's amazing. It all started. In San Diego, great, and you were very helpful. Job. No, that was a great job. San Diego is a good place for good ideas. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that you're working on now is a, a, a charge. We kind of talked about that, but a statewide initiative to reform Propositions 47 and bring back uh, drug courts and prevent these uh, smash and grabs. You want to tell us a little bit about this initiative? Yeah, I mean, in 2014, when Proposition 47 passed, again, you know, the idea was that, uh, you know, people who steal under $950 or who possess methamphetamine or heroin, cocaine, that, you know, they need help, they need treatment. But what it failed to do is put any kind of consequence for habitual and repeat offenders. So, so like this last week, we had somebody who stole from Target 27 times, 27. And every single time he got a citation and it's a misdemeanor and nothing is going to happen. You can't even aggregate the amounts so that they reach over $950. So this is, uh, this impact has impacted also our homelessness. Because what maybe people don't realize is since the passage of Proposition 47, homelessness in California has gone up by 51% because there's no incentive to get treatment. Yes, there are people on the street who are there because of poverty, PTSD, and other things, but there's also a very substantial part that are on the street because of untreated addiction. And with the laws not being able to bring any kind of incentive, we are, we're really, really failing. Other states that didn't go down this extreme route have brought down their homelessness by 11%. So this isn't a national problem. This is related to bad laws and policies in California. So what the initiative I'm supporting that the attorney general has accepted, it is called the Homelessness, Drug Addiction, and Theft Reduction Act. And you can find it at 
californiasafecommunities.com or casafecommunities.com. And what it does is three things. When you are you get two convictions that are misdemeanors for theft. The third one becomes a felony that can be reduced to a misdemeanor if you get the treatment you need that underlined why you're doing this. The same with the possession of hard drugs. On the third time, you don't get a misdemeanor. You get a drug, a treatment-mandated felony. So you go to drug court, which we know saves lives. You get treatment. And if you do it, then it goes away or is a misdemeanor. It can be handled. To me, those are smart solutions. And when it comes to fentanyl, right now you sell fentanyl to someone and the law says you cannot charge a great bodily injury if the person dies because the law requires you to actually administer the drug. None of our dealers are actually administering fentanyl. They're selling it and then the person uses it. And so it adds a, an enhancement when you murder someone or end them in a wheelchair or with brain damage, which is the way laws should work. There should be a consequence for the harm commensurate with the harm that you bring about. And that's really important. Uh, District Attorney, what do you say when people uh, say the common cliche, the, the war on drugs is, has, has been a failure? Well, I, I do think that that our nation went too far at one point with our laws. Um, they, I think they also selected, uh, you know, one one type of use over another, like the crack cocaine. Uh, but but I think that is not that that's that's such um, a term that is so general, but actually means nothing. <laughs> exactly I mean, what I say. <laughs> I mean, it it means nothing because we should fight anything that hurts people and our children, our communities. So if you want to call it a war, you know, I call it a fight. I mean, you can use, you have to fight against the things that are harming our community and just lining the pockets of cartels and enhancing um, slavery because that's what the cartels use to make all this stuff. So what I'm, what what I'm saying is that we do have to be smart. We have to look at the issue holistically. We have to bring, like I said, prosecution. Be tough, but be fair. Give first, second chances, but then bring accountability and incentives. Marry that with available treatment, adding Medi-Cal, Medicare to treatment so more people can have accessible treatment. And marry that with early prevention. So we don't have our nation be the highest demand seeking nation for drugs in the world. Yeah. We are like the, you know, I mean, it's sad. I mean, we're like cartels look at us as, you know, such sitting ducks. Like we're we're ready. We're ready to line their pockets because we don't do anything to actually have a firm stance against drugs, and have a, a firm and effective prevention program that doesn't build a generation that thinks 
Ah, this is nothing. It's fine. It's like candy. I get to experiment all day long. Nothing will happen to me and uh, it won't hurt me, which is absolutely not true. Right. Um, you know, whatever you think of the war on drugs, but it doesn't mean we should have an open free drug trade because that just creates a pipeline uh, of exactly. more and more people with addiction. We're not going to you know, they say you're not going to arrest your way out of it, but we're not going to naloxone and treat our way out of it either. We're going to prevent it, our way out of it. That's what we learned from history with tobacco and opiates. That's right. Uh, District Attorney, how do you maintain your faith in humanity, seeing all the, like, the worst of the worst also that humanity has? You're such a positive person despite that. You know, I I really, I, I draw uh, such uh, inspiration from just the people that I interact with that have been through the worst things, you know, little girls that have been sold in every hotel in San Diego um, with people walking by their rooms and not paying any attention, you know, kids that are harmed by the very parents that are supposed to take care of them. And then I see them still rise, you know, I see like the human spirit is such a marvel that you, you almost can't kill it. Like you try and try, but if you even leave a little grain, a seed in there, and then we bring it and we water it, it just grows. So, so I, I just still believe that there's so much more good than bad. And for as long as I believe that, I want to be the part that brings that good and makes it flourish. You know, we opened a North County Family Justice Center. It is built on this very concept of hope, justice, and healing. So mar marrying the health field with, the, with justice to produce like true hope and true healing and and it's an amazing place where people walk in and there are 99 partners, including um, a child advocacy center, a hospital, a, a nurses, sexual assault nurses, domestic violence and um, DAFI strangulation nurses, uh, trauma doctors and nurses with practical things like how do you get a job after you've depended on your abusive husband all your life for a job? How do you stand on your own two feet? How do you bring about shelter and dignity and humanity? Um, and we've had, we opened July 5th of 2022. It's been my dream to open this place. It's a state of the art. It's unbelievably beautiful when you walk in. I wanted the best for our victims. But 3,500 victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, elder abuse have walked through the doors. And more than half of them have returned time and time again. And many of them have now thrived and are kind of coming back more as peer support and mentors. And it's incredible to see. And that, that really gives me hope. Um, I think there's more studies now about that hope is actually a real thing. It, it, if, you can, if you can still keep our community hopeful and not kill our spirit completely, we can continue to rise. And it's what we're trying to do, I think, despite 
really bad laws coming our way. Um, we just continue to fight every day. And, you know, I, as uh, people joke, they say, you know, I'm very nice and I, I hope I am and kind and all of this. But when you hurt my community, there's fire that shoots out of my eyes because I don't like it. And I'm going to fight every day to protect as many people that need our protection, our care. And they need to be told the truth about what's happening as I can. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, District Attorney Summer Stefan, you're our rock star. We are so fortunate to have you here in San Diego, making our community better. And I especially appreciate your partnership with, with public health because you make us better doctors and better providers. I appreciate that. And you've made me better over the years and your fellow health and doctor professionals. Thank you so much. I just love our community. And I think you're amazing, Dr. Love. Thank you. Thanks. And as you mentioned, love is stronger than hate. That's what keeps us going. That's right. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org to learn more. High Truths producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more. High Truths.